This week, what are the chances of limiting global temperature rises to one and a half degrees? Before Paris, there's basically no research on, on 1.5 degrees. And when climate change messes with your research. The birds migrated back at least two weeks earlier. They were already nesting. In fact, some nests had already begun and failed by the time we were out there doing the fieldwork. Plus, persuading people of the dangers of climate change when the weather is actually quite nice. This is The Nature Podcast for April the 21st, 2016. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. It's a climate change special this week because this Friday, the 22nd of April, is Earth Day. And to tie in, on that day, over 100 countries will sign the Paris Climate Agreement. At the heart of the agreement, reached in December last year, is the aim to keep global temperature increases, in their words, well below 2 degrees C above pre-industrial levels, and to pursue efforts to limit the increase to 1.5 degrees C. Adam Levy finds out what we know about how low we can go. 1.5 degrees. It's a little number, but it was a big surprise for climate researchers when it was announced in December. Before the Paris deal, most research on a temperature limit had focused on 2 degrees, the goal agreed in Cancun in 2010. Before Paris, there's basically no research on on 1.5 degrees. This is Glenn Peters, who researches climate science and policy. But basically no research doesn't mean no research at all. Yuri Rogel has been one of the few researchers obsessing over 1.5 degrees over the last five years. If you're looking for literature on 1.5 degrees... Yuri's the literature. My research has been focusing on emission scenarios to limit warming to below 1.5 degrees. But, as Glenn said, Yuri was kind of out there on his own doing this research on 1.5 degrees. It was just something that was not on the radar of many of the other academics and uh, where also not that much funding was available for. It wasn't just funding that wasn't available. Researchers use emission scenarios to simulate future climate change. These give projections on how global emissions might change in the future. And researchers use a range of these emission scenarios to try to capture the full gamut of possibilities. But this range didn't even include one and a half degrees. The common scenarios which were run by many climate modelling teams, the lowest of these scenarios provides you with a likely chance of staying below two degrees. The absence of one and a half degrees isn't necessarily surprising, given that this cap seemed like something of a pipe dream. Piers Forster, a climate scientist at Leeds University in the UK, says even two degrees seemed pretty optimistic. The whole rest of the community pretty much thought it was very ambitious to get to two degrees, so why talk about one and a half half degrees, I think. But then the Paris negotiations started. Halfway through the talks, campaigners and low-lying island nations led a push to see this lower limit included in the deal. Piers was amazed to see the possibility that such an ambitious goal could be included in the final text. Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, yeah, so it, it did really get scientists like myself really talking about it, in fact, because, yeah, a whole lot of us suddenly became really excited when we realised that we could well have one and a half degrees target. So when the deal was finalised, with one and a half degrees still included, researchers realised that they were going to have to play catch-up. It did indicate that we weren't doing our job 
But it was also really exciting because if the world is very serious about a one-and-a-half degree target, it does open up a whole lot of different scientific questions that are really exciting to think about. But Piers isn't the only one excited by the prospect of all this new research. Last week, the IPCC, that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, announced that it will prepare a special report on the topic. That won't come out till 2018. But even now, we do know a little about the benefits of keeping warming below 1.5 degrees rather than 2 degrees. For example, we know it could help substantially limit sea level rise. And it seems like it could make a big difference to corals around the world. But with so little research, it's still pretty hard to say what the differences are between a one and a half and a two degree warmer world. Or whether it'll be worth the effort for us to get there. Because it will take a lot of work. To get to 1.5, what we know now says that we need a global carbon price almost immediately and we need large amounts of negative emissions. And to put that in perspective, they're basically capturing and storing as much as we currently emit today. So that's a huge amount of uh, carbon to capture and, and store. Glenn thinks that even limiting warming to two degrees, the temperature the Paris deal aims to stay well below, is a tall order. So what does he reckon our odds are of staying under one and a half degrees of warming? Zero. <laughs> now, it's, it's a little bit unclear to me about why 1.5 was put in there when it's probably going to be very hard to get to, if not impossible. And Glenn reckons that if this goal is impossible, researching it is a waste of time. But Piers doesn't agree. He reckons that we might still have some hope of getting to 1.5 degrees. I do think we will get there one day. Perhaps when in... 2100 or in the 2100s, we could be back down to one and a half degrees of temperatures. But I think it would be very difficult not to go above them for some time. That was Piers Forster. Before him, you heard from Glenn Peters, who's at Cicero in Norway, and Yuri Rogel, who's at the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis. More information on our website, nature.com forward slash nature forward slash podcast. Coming up later in this special climate-themed show, persuading people that climate change is bad when the weather is good, and what to do when climate change starts messing up your research projects. A hint, flexible plane tickets and large carnivore deterrents. Now, though, it's the research highlights with Cory Locke. In the classic fable, The Town Mouse and the Country Mouse, the two mice find that they have vastly different lifestyles. It turns out that they may have had genetic differences, too. Researchers have found that populations of the white-footed mouse in New York City have been evolving separately from mice living in the countryside over the past 400 years. The researchers even found genetically distinct populations in large city parks, such as Central Park. The park populations diverged from other city ones right around the time that the parks were first built. The mice can't migrate very far because of all the roads and buildings in the way, making urbanization a strong force in shaping the evolution of the animals. You can find the study in the journal Biology Letters. As the climate grows warmer, rainstorms may become more intense towards the center of the storm over a smaller land area. That's the conclusion of researchers who looked at rain and temperature data across Australia. They found that as the air temperature rises, 
atmospheric moisture becomes more concentrated near the storm center. This leads to more intense peak precipitation over a smaller area, and that could result in a higher risk of severe local flooding in a warming climate. The study was published in the journal Geophysical Research Letters. Every summer for the last 41 years, Arctic biologist George Devoki has packed his bags and set off for Cooper Island, a remote piece of land just off the north coast of Alaska. He spends three months tracking the behaviour of the guillemots that come to breed there. I started a seabird study in 1975 when oil development was uh, being planned for Arctic Alaska and uh, kept the study going um, when that program ended because I had so many birds I wanted to follow. Devoki used to take a tent and a slim food supply. He would melt pack ice for fresh water. But lately he's had to bring some more stuff with him. A lot more. I had to buy the cabin, two satellite phones. I have to haul water out to the island when I go. And I, I now carry a shotgun around with me constantly. I went there to just do a bird study and then climate change happened. Climate change is having a few effects. It's melting the sea ice and altering the seabirds' feeding and breeding behaviour. Their usual prey, the Arctic cod, is harder to find. But that's not the reason for all the extra kit. In the early 2000s, Devoki and the birds began having to share the island with an unexpected visitor. I suddenly had a polar bear walking around the island, um, and it was something I had not seen um, in, in, in all my time up there. So uh, that made me realise I have to now. Uh, cope with this environment in a very different way as the birds are trying to cope with it. Polar bears have become frequent visitors to Cooper Island as hunting on the thinner ice becomes more difficult for them. Devoki's tent wasn't safe anymore, so he built a cabin with a solar-powered electric fence. He's not the only researcher whose fieldwork is getting more difficult as a result of climate change. Conservation ecologist Paul Dolman at the University of East Anglia in the UK organises an annual field trip to monitor the population of a bird called the hubara. They migrate from Pakistan in the winter to nest in Uzbekistan. Only this year, because the winter was so mild... The birds migrated back at least two weeks earlier, and our field team really had to hit the ground running. They arrived there, the birds were already back, they were already nesting. In fact, some nests had already begun and failed by the time we were out there doing the fieldwork. The Hubara watching team will have to brave the Uzbek winter earlier next year to be ready when the birds arrive, says Dolman. And that's a lesson for all ecologists. You can't rely on received wisdom or past patterns. You have to, have to be adaptable and you have to expect that weather will be very different from what people's experience of it has been. The Hubara researchers might be able to factor climate change into their studies and learn about its effects on the birds' migration and breeding make a feature of it. But climate change has brought another long-running study of dolmens to its knees. Thetford Forest in southeast England has traditionally been a great habitat for woodlark. It's a managed landscape, the pine trees are felled and regrown, but the woodlark really like to nest on the open ground left when the trees are chopped down. And then, all of a sudden, due to mild, moist, damp winters, um, there's a new fungal pathogen called Phytophthora. They're now having to experiment with different tree crops, different ground preparation, um, because they're unable to plant the Corsican pine. Dolman and his team were keen to study the way the moist winters, possibly a result of climate change, were affecting the pines, and in turn the woodlark's habitat. 
But the fungus got so bad that the Forestry Commission had to stop planting pines and instead plant trees that can cope with the different conditions. So just as things were getting really interesting in terms of looking at how climate change affects habitat structure, affects habitat suitability for the bird, the entire management of the forest has changed. So now instead, we're working with the Forestry Commission and we're looking at management interventions to mitigate um, the change in the, the tree planting practice. With climate change making things so unpredictable, Dolman says, diversify. Really, the, the advice to people would be, don't put all your eggs in one basket, be, be flexible, have, have contingency, have backup plans and um, expect the unexpected. Meanwhile, back in Alaska, George DeVoke's challenges now include sea level rise in addition to polar bears. The island went half underwater last year because of the ice being so far offshore that there were major swells breaking on the island, which has never happened before. And um, if, if, if that's the way things are going to be going, I can't really deal with that issue once, once the island starts going underwater during, during the breeding season. Um, basically the study will have to be over. But again, um, I really want to be there when that happens because having followed something now for 41 years, I have to see how this is going to end. And however the story does end, it will always be a special sight for Devoki. There is a moment every year when I uh, get there and get uh, and the helicopter leaves or whoever took me out there leaves, and I'm looking around and I realize this has been the constant in my life now for four decades. And then certainly when I see these birds that I banded as chicks uh, over three decades ago and they are breeding on the island, there's a, there's a real connection. It feels, like, it feels like home and the birds feel like friends. That was George Devoki. You can find more details about his long-running study at cooperisland.org. You also heard from Paul Dolman, who is at the University of East Anglia. Thanks to Paul for the Woodlark song. Coming up in the news, gene editing human embryos and the benefit of using dirty mice in research. But first, the weather, which, as Adam Levy will never tire of telling you, is different to the climate. Nobody experiences the climate. Not properly. Weather is what we experience every day, wherever we are. Weather is what you check when you want to know if you need an umbrella. But climate tells us about larger scale patterns. So climate is what you check when you want to know if you need to improve your coastal defences over the next few decades. Because none of us experience climate directly, but we do experience weather a lot, our attitudes to climate change may be influenced by the weather. That's why Megan Mullen at Duke University in North Carolina, USA, has been investigating how the weather may be affecting Americans' attitudes to climate change. So what we found was that, indeed, exposure to heat in the few-week period prior to, say, a survey interview increased people's belief that evidence exists for global warming. And alternatively, exposure to cooler temperatures in that period reduced people's beliefs. So then that made us, you know, that raised our interest. We started thinking, what kinds of weather have people been exposed to over the longer period in which they've started to hear about climate change as a political issue? So Megan decided to see if weather has got better in America. Not its impact on the economy or its average over the entire country. 
she wanted to know if the weather actually experienced by the average American has got better. But what does better mean? I asked Megan how you tell what the average American wants from their weather in the first place. Right, that's the trick, because of course we all have different preferences. But the way we really find out what people like is to see where they choose to live and what the weather conditions are in those places. And this evidence demonstrates that people choose to move to places with warmer winters and cooler, less humid summers. And what, what did you actually find? What, what were the results in terms of how the weather was changing for most Americans? Winters for virtually all Americans have become substantially, consistently warmer. Summer temperatures have not risen very much. Um, the, the rise in summer temperature is far more variable across the United States. And in level, the rise in summer temperatures has not been as big as in winter. And so when you bundle these things all together, we found that 80% of Americans um, live in places where weather conditions have improved over the last 40 years. Now, why does this matter that weather conditions have improved for 80% of Americans? We know from a long literature in social science that people's personal experiences influence how they perceive public issues. We think crime is a more serious problem if we know people who have been victimized. And so we suspect that people's experiences with you know, easier wintertime commutes, um, more pleasant January days is a part of why Americans have not taken this issue as seriously as many of us would like, would like the public to do. But you also looked at how people's experiences of weather might change in the future. Yes, and the story is not quite so pleasant as we look forward. Um, the predictions are that summer temperatures will rise much more dramatically than winter temperatures. And under any climate scenario, the expectation is that the majority of the public will be experiencing less pleasant weather by the end of the century. So in, in many ways, America seems like a bit of an unusual example in that the severity of climate scepticism is a lot more intense than in other countries. I would have thought that, say, in Scandinavia, weather has got quite a bit nicer over the last few decades, and yet there are quite high levels of belief in climate change in Scandinavian countries. We're not willing to say that this story is the same in other places, but also importantly, this isn't the only story, right? This certainly isn't the only part of what's going on with skepticism and low levels of concern about climate change in the United States, but we think it may be part of the story. Assuming that this is one of the factors that it explains American skepticism in climate change, what, what can we do about it? We think there's an important lesson here about climate change communication. And ironically, that lesson is we might want to stop talking so much about the weather. When scientists are delivering the message that we've just had the warmest January ever, they think that comes with a sense of foreboding. But to much of the public, that comes as good news. If people's experiences with the weather are creating signals, giving lessons that um, climate change is not a concern, 
then that's going to get in the way of raising the kind of public demands for policy that many of us would like to see. That was Megan Mullen. Read the full study at nature.com forward slash nature. Time now for the news chat and Celeste Beaver joins us in the London studio. CRISPR, the gene editing technique, is back in the news. Not that it's out of the news that often, but what in particular have people been talking about? Ten days ago, the Nature News team discovered the second ever paper to be published reporting gene editing in human embryos using the CRISPR technique. And this is probably one of the most controversial issues in science right now. For a long time, people have been wondering about its potential for a human embryo. There's very exciting potential applications from that because you could potentially remove a gene that causes a disease. If that developed into a person, they wouldn't pass that on um, to their children either. However, some people see it as playing God in a way is the ultimate in playing God, if you think about it like that. So it's been a very kind of hot button issue. Um, We actually broke the story last year when we found the first paper, which was published by a Chinese team. And after that, there was an outcry about the work. People kind of got in a bit of a frenzy about what it all means and can we believe people are already doing this. But then we didn't see any more work published. Um, So the second paper is interesting because it suggests perhaps this kind of chill or freeze on the work is starting to thaw out. We also uh, reveal in our story this week um, that scientists in Sweden um, have the go-ahead to do experiments in human embryos as well, and that two more teams in China have got the go-ahead from an ethics committee to do that work too. So you mentioned that if these embryos were allowed to develop and grow into a baby or a person, then it would affect the human germline. Just to be clear, we're nowhere near that stage at the moment. No, I should say that's what makes people so interested in this is that potential. But the work that was done in China was done on, they're called non-viable embryos. So they're embryos that do not have the capacity to develop into a human being. So it's all about the research at this point. This particular work, they were trying to create a mutation that makes humans resistant to HIV just as an experiment. And actually in Sweden and the UK, where there are also experiments that have got the green light to go ahead, they will be using healthy human embryos that in theory have the potential to develop into a person, but there's absolutely no question that they would be allowed to develop in that way though. But that kind of potential always hangs around the work and makes it sort of interesting and controversial. So what's been the reaction now that this second story has broken? Because after the first one, it seemed like everyone wanted to put things on hold and now it seems like things are just kind of carrying on. I think things have changed a lot since the first paper a year ago. Um, One really important thing was a big international summit um, that happened at the end of last year where people from all over the world met up to discuss it and there was an agreement that gene editing should not be used in human embryos that are intended to actually produce a pregnancy, but it didn't sort of call for a ban on research on them. So I think the community is starting to kind of coalesce around this idea that editing embryos for research is acceptable and actually some people think it's a really good thing um, in terms of figuring out what we as a species ultimately want to do with the technology. But compared to lots of other CRISPR stories, this is actually quite far removed from anything that might affect you or me in the foreseeable future, right? Yeah, that's right. It's very much a almost philosophical debate. I mean, with very real implications at some point. But um, much closer to home is another piece of news this week that the US Department of Agriculture will not be regulating a mushroom that has been edited using CRISPR. 
There are regulations that govern genetically modified organisms, but because gene editing is seen as slightly different to other ways of genetic modification, they are going to allow it to go ahead without the normal regulation. So would this be the first CRISPR'd food that might be arriving on our dinner plate? It will be the first um, approved in the US, yeah. Yep. Well, I guess I won't be eating that mushroom myself because I hate mushrooms, gene edited or otherwise. Let's move on to our second story now, which is about how robust your mice are. Yeah, that's right. This is about an experiment that compared the immune systems of uh, mice grown specifically for lab experiments, which they're bred in a very sanitized environment with mice from both the wild that were trapped in a barn and also from pet shops. And perhaps unsurprisingly, the wild and the pet shop mice had very different immune systems. So what were the differences that they saw between these two kinds of mice? Well, the wild mice and the mice from the pet shops have strong, complex immune systems that mimic those of adult humans, whereas lab mice do not. And in particular, they have very low levels of a certain type of immune cell compared with adult humans. So just much less robust, much less complicated immune systems. So here they looked at what happens when you get these two different types of mice to hang out. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Once uh, the team discovered this difference, they then wanted to know whether it was caused by genes or by the environment or a mixture of both. And so they put some of the he calls them dirty mice, um, the mice from a pet shop, along with some of these very sanitized lab mice, stuck them together in the same environment for a while, found that 20% of the lab mice just died. They weren't robust enough to survive alongside these dirty mice. But the rest of the mice that did survive, their immune systems looked much more robust and uh, diverse, like the dirty mice. Um, And so his conclusion is that these either dirty mice or mice reared alongside dirty mice could be much more valuable for experiments because humans are not raised in this kind of sanitised environment and so their immune systems are more similar to the dirty mice. Do you think it's practical that other researchers might genuinely take note of this and try and use dirty mice? Well, there, there is some challenge to obtaining them and in fact someone in our story comments and says that for a researcher themselves to start doing this kind of thing would be quite a high overhead, but that someone could start selling kind of dirty mice, especially for labs, and that then it would be very attractive because when you're doing the exper- an experiment that's ultimately to produce a drug or a treatment for a human, you want the animal to reflect the human as much as possible. And they're saying that, especially when you're talking about disease, which is related to the immune system, these dirty mice could tell you things much earlier on that are more likely to guide you towards a solution that would work in humans. Celeste, thank you very much for joining us. Check out those news stories and others, of course, over at nature.com forward slash news. That's all for this week. Happy Earth Day for Friday. And in the meantime, if you enjoyed the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review in iTunes? Or simply come and say hi on Twitter. We're at Climate Adam, at Mini Kerry, and at Nature Podcast. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. <laughs>